What's up, guys? Wing Issues Podcast. My name is Saul Monali at Saul Monali NBA on Twitter. We have a very special edition of the podcast today. We're actually live and in person in the Apollo Studios. My first time doing an in-person podcast in over two years. <laughs> two years. I've been doing podcasts in the bowels of Toyota Center with various <laughs> Houston media for like ever. And then the pandemic happens and I can't do in-person podcasting yeah. anymore. And lo and behold, the first guest I get back is the somebody I've never actually done an in-person podcast with Ben Dubell. Yep. Ben, how you doing? Doing well. Uh, this is new. Yeah, I'm so used to, even as someone that used to do daily podcasts when I did the Lockdown Rockets from like 2016 through 2019, never did in-person. Or I shouldn't say never, very rarely. Once in a while, right. I get somebody at Toyota Center. But yeah, so the in-person model in a studio, man, this is fancy, dude. It is fancy. I'm never used to it, honestly. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I always feel way beneath whatever is going on yeah. around me. And I just try to fit in where I can. Yeah, and I think I think I'm getting the hang of it. Like this is obviously a cool space, and obviously I love Josh. The Josh uh, on the ones and twos, by the way, the man behind all all of this. And like, I think I can get used to it, but I can't be here all the time. I'm just so yeah. u- I'm just such a homebody. Well, I'm just amused by looking at their uh, graphic representation of the MLB trade deadline on the wall with uh, different uh, trade targets going to <laughs> all sorts of different locations around the country, including, of course, Trey Mancini and uh, Christian Vasquez to the Astros. It's a very color-coded geographic uh, poster breakdown. The only thing that happens in an actual studio, you know. Well, that's what I like about Apollo. It's like a very fun environment. Right. Yep. And like and like it's like it's kind of like the ringer, but for Houston, if it only existed <laughs> in Houston, which I like. Um, So I we should probably get started. I, I do want to say one thing before we get into our topic today. We have a very specific topic in mind that we'll get to. We've been waiting for six months on this topic. Yes. And, and we'll talk about why we waited six months for that topic. But I do want to say leave Dave alone. Dave Hardesty on Twitter at Clutch Fans. Leave the guy alone. All right. He had he had an interesting opinion about Kevin Porter Jr. He maybe is not as high on it as on him as maybe others are but like that doesn't mean he's not high on kevin porter jr he just probably isn't as high as perhaps some others are you know like mm-hmm. i think this idea in a rebuild that if you're if you don't view everyone as a star player as like a stone cold slam dunk this guy's going to be a cornerstone superstar type player you're disrespecting him and that's not the case at all like i think some guys are going to be home runs some guys are going to be singles and that's fine and I think that's kind of what Dave was trying to express on my podcast. Unfortunately, <laughs> the intern clipped uh, probably the worst part of the podcast he, he could possibly could have clipped, put it on social media, and, and, that, and he got in trouble for that. Uh, and, you know, th- that sucks. But I did feel like I had to address it because it happened on this podcast. Yeah, and I'll just add on, Dave is one of the nicest guys in Rockets so Media. So nice. I've known him really 20 years now, going back to early days of Clutch fans. But I've known him as a person since I started doing credentialed Rockets stuff in 2009 he could not be more helpful and quite frankly if you enjoy podcasts like this and things outside the traditional media space covering the rockets it starts with him yeah it starts with dave he was the one that opened that door and i promise you he is as genuine as it gets in his analysis if kpj ends up turning into a superstar and worth way more than some of the extension figures right now he will be the happiest person on the planet he doesn't want to be right he wants the rockets to win that is his only interest and so what's disconcerting and i think it's just sort of the modern social media dynamic and what we go through these days is people that turn basketball disagreements into personal. We saw it leading up to the yeah. draft when Dave was lower on Paolo Bencaro than a lot of the younger generation. And of I Rockets disagreed Twitter. with him on that, actually. And, and yeah. but the thing is, I disagreed with him. 
and we were respectful about the dialogue and like you can do that that's the thing it doesn't have to be yeah. balls to the wall if you're not with us you're against us it can just be a civil disagreement yeah absolutely just stick to the merits and he may not be as high on kevin porter jr as some of you listening are or maybe you are salman but that's completely fair and i can promise you he's not doing out of bad faith it's nothing personal he just happens to be lower on the guy than some of the people that are pushing back strongly i haven't listened to the entire episode full disclosure i've just seen some of the headlines and when i say headlines i use it loosely uh the tweets floating around and all that stuff and the one that went viral that you took down but i will just say <laughs> Um, Dave really means well. He is a sharp basketball guy, and he's really the pioneer for independent media getting to cover the Rockets that don't come up the traditional way through a TV outlet, an established radio station, or the Houston Chronicle, outlets like that. Dave is a pioneer. He loves the team. He wants them to do well. And if you have a different opinion on a basketball player than he does, that's fine. And even if he you know, annoys you to a certain extent – we don't all have to like each other. You can just, yeah, you know, you can ignore, you can mute, you can unfollow. There's a million things you can do. You don't have to take it and turn it personal. That's where I think some of it really goes over the line. And what I don't like about the disagreement, it's like they've turned Dave into this caricature, like curmudgeon old man. And like, that's not Dave at all. <laughs> no, not like, at all. Again, like he was the pioneer for this internet rocket space, like legitimately the first person on the map. Clutchfans.net is an institution before Reddit became popular for Rockets fans, before anything online, it was clutchfans.net. And, and people are still on there to this day. One of the most active forums, not only in Houston, on the internet. And so this idea that, like this, like he is not a part of like the new generation. I get it. You know, he, he was a part of that first wave of internet, but like he is very much with you guys. Like he is, he wants the Rockets to win and succeed as bad as you guys do. I don't know. It's just, it's just, uh, it's very strange to me, yeah. but uh, all I wanted to say is like Dave's obviously yep. a friend of ours. We're biased. I don't care. I, I don't mind being biased in this scenario because he's a good guy. Yeah. Uh, if I want to vouch for him, the guy's really good, really smart. He doesn't, yep. He's not out there trying to rush hot takes. But. And I will say, as someone that knows him on a personal level, he's definitely not curmudgeon -y. He gets no. excited. He is fun to be around. So don't try and take a couple of tweets and act like that you know the person that's behind them. We all can grade on each other from time to time. It happens. There's just no need to turn it personal. I promise Dave is a great guy, and he's really paved the way for a lot of people, including us, to be a little bit more authentic in this space and not have it as buttoned down as it was 15 years ago. It was so tough to break down the doors, especially within the Rockets, and that's what Dave with Clutch Fans did, finally getting those credentials, and he sort of laid the groundwork for people behind them, and he's a fantastic guy in person could not speak more highly of him you may not always agree with him on basketball that's totally fine but there's no reason to make it extra just leave it as a basketball disagreement and we move on yeah leave dave alone guys um okay so today we're more or less evaluating tillman fertitta's reign as owner of the houston rockets he bought the team in 2017 we're approaching the five-year mark now is as good a time as any to start talking about mm. what we think so far Okay, so I should probably explain why we're yeah. doing this. So, okay, six months ago, we got into one of our own it was right Twitter after the trade. It was right after the trade deadline because right. that's when you see a lot of higher-level analysis. And, of course, some people around the Rockets were a little annoyed that, you know, they didn't trade Eric Gordon. Still haven't traded Eric Gordon. At the time, they hadn't traded Christian Wood either. They have traded Christian Wood since. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, after the trade deadline is when people do a lot of sort of macro level thinking and so i think that's sort of how it spirals right right i i, I believe uh, i responded to one of your tweets but i was definitely one of those people that was critical about what houston was doing at the trade deadline or not doing rather and um 
it it became a little kerfuffle but again like <laughs> dave and i are friends i mean not dave ben and i are <laughs> friends so he texted me we said we talked about pocketing this conversation for a podcast in the future and that's what we're doing today we're evaluating tillman fertita as an owner he's five five years into his tenure as great a time as any let's first backtrack to when he first purchased the team yep. So he buys the team at arguably the peak of its value in 2017, yeah. right? Uh, at this point in time, the foundation for the organization has already been built. Mm-hmm. Tad Brown and Daryl Morey were, bur- were both bought in in 2006. Tad as CEO, Morey mm-hmm. as assistant general manager, and he gets promoted in 2007 to full-time general manager. Mm-hmm. And at the at the time that he purchases the Rockets, Morey is actually the longest tenured, tenured president of basketball operations in the NBA. So more or less, everyone in the front office and business side was a Leslie Alexander hire. And then you get to the team side. James Harden's been there for five years already and established himself as a perennial MVP candidate. Mike D'Antoni was hired the year before. Um, he bought the team in September, so the offseason was already over. And that core of James Harden, Chris Paul, Clint Capella, P.J. Tucker has already been assembled. And is it fair to say that the bones for the next two seasons of Rockets basketball was already placed, put in place? I'm not, I don't think I'm saying anything out of line here. You no, know, that's absolutely fair. He took over a team at its peak. However, the comparison that I would draw, it's actually very similar to, to when Les. Les Alexander right. bought the team prior to the 93-94 uh, championship run. He took over the summer before. With Tillman, the agreement was reached in July, finalized in October. So it's basically the same thing, the offseason before. And all they had to do the first year was basically not get in the way. And to Tillman's credit, year one, he definitely did not. 65 and 17, I still contend that's the best team in Rockets history, even though they didn't get the championship. Just by all the metrics, they were the best team that we have ever seen in Houston, at least from a basketball perspective. And if not for Chris Paul injuring his hamstring, they take out one of the greatest teams in NBA history, the Warriors with KD, to get that ring. And that's one reason why I'm a little bit sympathetic to Tillman Fertitta. Um, I do think his media strategy we can we'll, we'll get to we'll that, get to that. Yeah. but just as sort of like a holistic overview of this i'm a little bit sympathetic because i really don't think his overall numbers to this point in terms of investment relative to market size around the league are all that different than less it's just that less always had a halo because he was the first owner not just in Rockets history in the history of major houston sports to lift a championship trophy and that always gave him a bit of a halo effect. And with he the also had this air of being not involved in, in, which was quite the opposite. He was very involved. He just stayed behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And Tillman is very much in front of the camera all the time. So the, like the perception of those two could not be well, different. And, and Tillman's backed off a little bit the last couple of years. We'll talk right. about that. That's part of the transition, right. but early in his tenure, especially. And so that's why I, I'm a little bit sympathetic to Tillman because really the year one situations were identical. The only difference, of course, is that Hakeem did not have his hamstring go out or for that matter, um, Otis Thorup or anybody else from Vernon Maxwell, that 93-94 starting lineup at the worst time to where that team couldn't win the championship. I guess in this parallel, uh, Harden would be Hakeem because he was the MVP. But the point is, Les had better luck than Tillman did. And Les sort of used, not knowingly, not saying he intentionally did it, but the fact that he had those two titles always gave him the benefit of the doubt in a way that Tillman Fertitta has not gotten largely because Chris Paul's hamstring went out at the wrong time. Otherwise, at the end of year one, 
Tillman Fertitta is on stage expecting, uh, accepting the Larry O'Brien trophy from Adam Silver, just the same way that uh, Les Alexander was from David Stern back in the day. And in many ways, that would sort of shift the perception of everything that followed. So I guess that's one reason why I'm a little bit sympathetic is that not everything in sports is by design. Some of it is just quite frankly luck. And Tillman in year one definitely had some really, really bad luck because that would have given him a lot of goodwill with the fan base, even if it wasn't earned. It would have given him some goodwill that ultimately he didn't get. Absolutely. And I want to be clear that that was not a criticism. I just want to, you know, I just don't believe somebody gets credit for stepping in and stepping aside. Right. I think he does deserve credit for paying up. Right. For those teams. Like, I think he did invest a significant amount of salary. He bought the team knowing he would have to pay Chris Paul, James Harden. Chris, uh, Clint Capella and PJ Tucker, and he did that. He paid those guys, and and he kept that core together for the next two years. Um, and I want to talk about Trevor Reza because yep. I think this is the first big decision the Rockets made that Tillman Fertina got a ton of criticism for, and people thought Tillman was dodging the luxury tax by not retaining him in 2018. And I think you might be surprised, but with how I felt about this, here's the thing: this is I think this is not a Tillman Fertina decision at all. Like, this was 100% a front office decision made independently. Like, you don't have to be plugged in to understand that Daryl Morey despises one thing more than anything else in this world, and that's overpaying for role players mm. slash bad contracts, right? Like, just look at the history. In his time as GM, the Rockets have only signed four bad contracts, or four contracts that have aged poorly, rather. Jeremy Lin, Omer Ashik, Ryan Anderson, and Corey Brewer. That's mm. it. That's the only four. And he salary dumped all those contracts. So he has a pretty simple philosophy that I agree with, actually. Role players in the NBA are imminently replaceable. Star, yeah. star players are not. You can find someone who, give, who will give you 70 to 80% of Trevor Ariza's value for one-tenth of the cost. You can't do that with Chris Paul. That's why he was more willing to give Chris Paul his four-year max and not give $15 million for one year of Trevor Ariza. Mm -hmm. You notice people who talk about the Rockets and this decision-making process that summer, uh, you know, when, when they talk about Tre uh, you know them not retaining Trevor Ariza, they don't ever talk about whether or not Trevor Ariza was worth that money or how he played yeah. for the following six seasons. That's never brought up. Uh, defensively, Trevor Ariza was on a swift decline. And if you were watching the games closely, you could see it. I said it in the moment. You could also say the same thing, by the way, about Luke Bamute. I was told at the time that beyond finances, that injury history and his medicals were a part of the decision. And that ended up being how it played out. They didn't use whatever uh, exception. They didn't have rights on him because he was a minimum signing in 2017. So they didn't have rights, but they did have an exception they could have used, chose not to. But medicals were a part of that. And guess what? Luke Bamute has not been a consistent rotation player since. I believe he's out of the league now. Right. And I remember saying that when Luke and Bamute got hurt the first time in 2017, that the Rockets had just lost their best perimeter defender. And I caught a ton of for that and like, you know, the criticism was like what about Trevor Ariza you're forgetting yeah. you're forgetting about Trevor Ariza and here's the thing Trevor Ariza had that starting small forward spot for four reasons that season one PJ Tucker played power forward okay two Eric Gordon made more sense as a sixth man mm. and, and a shooting guard three he was a more reliable shooter than Luke and Bahamute and four he was the established guy and I remember reading this long feature that Zach Lowe wrote on Trevor Ariza that year Yep. And like 
cringing because I didn't share the same feelings that the public had about Trevor Ariza. His defensive reputation, in my opinion, had surpassed what he was actually doing on the floor. Yeah. And you saw it in the following seasons. Ariza hasn't been a good defender in several years. Nobody talks about that. It's just not brought up. And you know what else nobody talks about? The Rockets successfully replaced Ariza's production that season by making Eric Gordon the full-time starter mm-hmm. and replacing his bench production with Austin Rivers, Daniel House, and Iman yes. Shumpert. Just nobody talks about it. And like they weren't as like they weren't as good that year, not because they lost Trevor Ariza, but because Chris Paul was not playing yes. like Chris Paul, just like James Even Harden in this playoffs, past season. With right? the exception of game six. Yeah. Right, yeah, like just like James Harden this past season, he was still recovering from his grade three hamstring injury, and he wasn't himself. So I actually had no problem with Houston not re-signing so, Trevor Ariza. He was not the player worth going into the luxury tax for. And James Ennis, who they salary dumped later that season, that was something totally in line with Daryl's philosophy on yeah. team building. That's actually now, why Trevor Ariza was a rock in the first place. Because remember, they didn't they signed Trevor Ariza because mm-hmm. they didn't want to overpay Chandler Parsons. Yeah. Now I will push back a little bit in that with Trevor Ariza, because there wasn't really an ability to replace him, they were above the the cap, so it was basically a use it or lose it with regards to his bird rights. It was a one year deal, so there was there were no long term commitments there. And you're right about Daryl hating overpaid contracts. But at the same time, that's also because He's known his entire tenure in Houston that his owners did not want to go deep into the luxury tax. So while I am sympathetic to Tillman Fertitta in terms of the broader narrative, I will say that some of the decisions that Daryl made were probably because of the context, not just with Tillman, but with Les as well, that, hey, we're probably not going to spend what the current Warriors owners are. And so you sort of have to keep in that context. And with Ariza, Granted, the one year, even for one year, $15 million was a pretty big overpay that the Suns gave him. At the same time, look, he was a contributor and they lost him for no compensation. And that but, was but, sort but of. Here's what I'll say. Like, okay. they did have, you're right. Like, they could have, they could have traded Ariza later, right? Like, they, they right. use it or lose it. They also had Brandon Knight's contract just sitting there for trade, which they eventually used. So well, they not didn't yet, have, but they, they got it later that summer when they dumped Ryan. But right. Yeah. 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 Like, like they, they had significant salary on the books that they could use to go get a significant rotation player. And they did that. Like, they didn't need Trevor Ariza specifically to go acquire a role player that yep. would that would be serviceable. So I, I, I think this idea that they had to keep him because they had bird rights, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a reasonable pushback. I would just say that for a team that was that close, you can certainly make the argument just to run it back. In my opinion, just looking at sort of the overall Tillman Fertitta picture, the vast majority of the poor decisions that were made happened in a 13-month span from June 2018 we'll to there. July of 2019. And, of course, it started arguably with the Ariza. And I know we'll get to the rest in a little bit. But in my opinion, what happened there, in my opinion, and thankfully I do think that the trend now is positive, one of the worst things that can happen is a new owner comes in and sees everything go so well in that year one that they think it's easier than it actually is. And I think overall, the entire Rockets organization, not just Tillman Fertitta, but things came so easily for them in that 65-win season that I think organizationally, they just sort of thought, hey, let's get back to the playoffs. And as long as we can have Chris Paul out on the court, then everything's going to be fine. And I think they were genuinely stunned after that game six 2019, I will never forget how quiet everything was at Toyota Center 
when it was winding down that night, I think everyone in the organization expected that things would just turn out different if Chris Paul was there. And that was especially after, of course, Kevin Durant left midway through that series. And it didn't happen. And that's what led to just a tumultuous 2019 offseason. I know we'll get into it. But I think really the root is that things happened so well for Tillman Fertitta in that first year that I think organizationally, it's almost like everything we touch automatically works out. And it was as if things, quite frankly, were easier, that success to come by, than they actually uh, than it actually was. That's sort of how I look at some of the poor decisions. And that's another area, by the way, that I think I wish people on social media would consider more. Owners can evolve just like anybody else. This is not like a, a zero-sum game to where once we form a definitive conclusion, then it's set, this is who that person is, and they're never going to change. No, like all of us, you know, we can learn from mistakes. And I think in this case, what led to that first mistake or the, the series of mistakes was that that year one was so perfect that it just made them think that it was a lot easier than it actually was. And I'm sure some people are still saying, well, that year one didn't result in the championship. No, it didn't. But it would have if not for Chris Paul's hamstring. I think that is a completely reasonable conclusion. And so in many ways, it's sort of the worst case scenario for the Rockets fan base. It's an ownership group and really an organization that sort of acts like we had this championship team, which they did, but they didn't even get the, when I say they, the fans, the payoff that comes with actually winning that ring. So it's like they sort of behave the next year like a defending champion, but then the fans didn't even have the, the ring, the parade that goes with that. And then, of course, we saw what happened uh, after the rust trade in 2019. Yeah, and, and the point I was trying to make with the Trevor Ariza thing is like, to my knowledge, there was never a directive from ownership to Daryl in that front office to avoid the luxury tax. I don't think that ever happened. And let's get this, let's get to this weird press conference in 2018 that happened following the, Tre- the Trevor Reza thing where Tillman talks about the luxury tax and repeater tax as being a terrible hindrance. Mm-hmm. So Tillman caught a ton of <laughs> for this press conference and it's coming off the heels of the Trevor Reza thing, right? Yeah. And I'll just say this. It looks bad until you understand the context behind it. And even then it still looks a little bit bad, but it makes it look a little bit better. So. Jonathan Fagan, the Houston Chronicle, mm-hmm. he came on my podcast last year and said that Tillman was coached on how the Rockets approached the luxury tax and repeater tax before, and I believe he, again that morning on how to handle the spending question because he was going to get asked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was it was coming right. The Trevor Reza stuff was coming, and even if the Rockets may have told him that's how they view spending. He was not supposed to say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm not going to excuse the comments, but I'll say it's a fairly harmless case of new new owner syndrome. And like new owners, when they get into the NBA, they say crazy <laughs> They're totally unfamiliar with the territory. They're not NBA media trained. Um, Vivek Randive actually said one time that he wanted the Kings to adapt a cherry-picking offense where <laughs> someone is constantly running back, on uh, not running back on defense. And yeah. Tillman loves being in front of a microphone. So he is particularly... Mm-hmm susceptible to new owner syndrome he had a wild press conference after the rockets were eliminated in 2019 so this 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 one in 2018 wasn't a great look but i think it was a case of misunderstanding the assignment which is to tell the media you're willing to pay the luxury tax and move on and there was also a bad uh interview after the 2019 deadline uh i can't remember if it was a press conference or not uh actually no i think it was a one-on-one with a reporter 
But he basically said that their moves to get under the luxury tax happened by accident, that it was almost a miracle, like that it wasn't planned. When in reality, it's pretty clear that they shed Ryan, they shed DeAnthony Melton to offload Ryan Anderson. It was the James Ennis trade. That, that, that was the trade that got the Well, that was right one of them, under. but like it, it was a series of trades. So right. at the end of the 2018 offseason, like August 30th or so, they traded um, Ryan, Anderson, yeah. Ryan Anderson and DeAnthony Melton. Melton as the sweetener. He was a second-round pick but played really well in summer league and, of course, has turned into a solid player um, to Phoenix because Knight had one year left on his deal. And then at the deadline, they turned uh, Knight into Shumpert, who was an expiring – and to do that, they gave up a first-run pick as sweetener. So basically, they turned Ryan Anderson, who had two years left at the time, into Knight, who had one. Then Shumpert was expiring. And the sweetener to make that work, to offload Ryan's salary. And again, I understand why. He was a $20 million a year player who was not going to be playing. That's not fun for any owner. But they gave up to Anthony Melton and a first-run pick. Granted, it was a late first-run pick. But still, you know, they all have value. And that's one of those moves at the margins that Rockets fans wonder about. Hey, if... We had kept the Anthony Melton. If we had kept that first run pick or perhaps used that as trade capital, could we have gotten something that could have gotten them over the hump against the Warriors that ensuing year? And after the deadline, I can't remember who the interview was with, but he basically said that it was by, by accident that it just happened. No, I mean, let's be honest. I think they clearly wanted to shed salary in those moves, uh, not just in terms of years. I mentioned, you know, Shumpert was expiring and Ryan had two years left, but, um, but also in like annual salary, like Ryan was about 10 million. Um, no, Ryan was 20 million and they got down to 15, which was Brandon Knight. And then Shumpert was closer to 10 because you can take back a little bit less in each of those moves. 75%. But, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so it was like a, you know, just a descending amount, uh, going down the ladder each time. And I think a lot of fans took that comment just sort of as being disingenuous. And I understand why it's annoying when, you know, you have these, comments before the year and you're trying to put all of this together and they're not really adding up because as you said you know that time it talked about it being a horrible hindrance and then they sort of coached him up and then there was another interview oh we'll do what we have to do to have a contender and then some of the actions don't mirror that and it feels like the the words are all over the place and i think that's what turns a lot of fans off but in reality what i'm trying to say is that the actual actions when you look at them are really not that different from less alexander or what most comparable owners do with a market size similar to this one and so that's why i've always sort of graded him on a curve as sort of trying to watch not just the media strategy but also what is actually happening are these moves really that out of context with what else happens around the league the one thing I will say about his media strategy, and he's been – let's give him credit. He's been a lot quieter the last couple of years. The only time I heard him this year, he gave a brief interview after they had the Memorial Hermann partnership announcement a couple of months ago. Um, and then he gave the one interview with Tim McMahon because that's ESPN. You're going to give ESPN occasional interviews. And it was a really over, – overall, it was a very positive feature that ran on draft day. But keep in mind what Tillman Fertitta's introduction to the world of athletics was. It came at the University of Houston when he took over as the Board of Regents and really around the start of the 2010s starting invested, investing heavily into new facilities, the contracts to get coaches like Kelvin Sampson for basketball, uh, Kevin Sumlin, Dana Holgerson, Tom Herman for football. And when you're at a place like U of H, I know you're a Cougar, so don't take offense to this, but especially U of H like 10 to 15 years ago, there's no such thing as bad PR. 
because number one, the expectations are a lot less. Media tends to be more positive, especially when it's not like upper division one. Maybe it's a little bit different if we're talking about, I don't know, like Alabama or Georgia football, something like that. But college basketball, it's not at the top of the food chain or college football for that matter. Expectations are lower. Media aren't quite as critical. And then even if they were, really what he was trying to do was engage the hell out of that top 10%, the people in the fan base, the boosters, the donors who would help him fund these new facilities, these coaching hires, what it takes to compete at a very high level in college basketball and college football nationally. And to Tillman's credit, U of H is doing that now. The progress that U of H has made over the last 10 to 15 years is absolutely remarkable when you think of what the U of H athletic program looked like in the late 2010s uh, or late 2000s, excuse me, before Tillman started around 2010. And he deserves a ton of credit for that. But as part of that process, it's one of those things you never turn down a camera if Mark Berman is sitting courtside and has at the U of H basketball game his phone out. You say, hey, sure, I'll do that. And you can blast that out, Mark, to your Twitter audience. And again, it's just about raising visibility. That was the name of the game at U of H. Any PR is good PR. Just get us on the map. Whereas in the NBA, it's very different. You already are on the map. You don't have to raise visibility. Sometimes less is more. And especially when we're talking about one of the most visible franchises in the best basketball league in the world – Fans and media are going to be more critical. They're going to have a more critical eye. They are going to hold you accountable in ways that at U of H, especially 10 to 15 years ago, they might not if some of your statements don't work out, especially because at U of H, even if some of the statements didn't pan out exactly right, well, guess what? The progress was so overwhelmingly positive compared to before that you'd be a fool to complain. And I think that was the biggest adjustment for Tillman coming to the world of pro sports is that from an ownership perspective and pro sports Less can be more when it comes to what you say. And I think we've seen a distinct shift the last couple of years. He's done far fewer interviews really since 2020, since the rebuild started. I think that's by design. But yeah, I think some of those interviews that you referenced, and then of course after the 2019 exit, the whole, uh, you know, that building. was wild. Like that wasn't even an organized thing. Right. Like, that was after a loss. He just comes out of the tunnel and like he starts just starts about rebuilding the team and in there his was, image. It was just Mark. I was, I was there that it was Mark Berman. He just starts talking to Mark Berman and then a circle just starts forming around him and he just starts that's an ex- impromptu. That's press exactly conference. what I'm, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And the, the point is, it's not the Rockets that are setting up these interviews. You know, Tracy Hughes, the people that media were are not trying to set this up. No, he does it on his own. And that's something he picked up at U of H, where at U of H, in that role, any publicity was good publicity. And I think he brought that in to his tenure with the Rockets, especially helped again the first year, everything was so overwhelmingly positive right up until that damn Chris Paul hamstring injury that it's sort of like, hey, if it ain't broke, why fix it? And then the second year, it was when things really started um, being underwhelming compared to expectations. And that's where I think they had to learn some hard lessons. And again, where I have, I mean, sympathy comes off a little weak, but I guess a better way to put it is I understand where he's coming from. Just because when you look at the role he had at U of H in building that athletic program and what worked from a media perspective, it's very different compared to 
what needs to happen in the NBA. I think he gets it now. I don't think he got it in the 2018 and especially 2019 years. Yeah, I just think like those press conferences, those early 2018 ones, he just got over his skis. Like he, he's kind of a loose cannon when he gets in front of a microphone, but he's not behaving that way when he's operating with the team, partly because he's not involved in day-to-day basketball operations as much as the general public thinks. And we'll get back to that point yep. in a minute. But Going back to the the Iman Shepard signing, I think that's the one where like you 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 had his bird rights and you didn't have you didn't yeah. have salary like you had to bring Iman back even if you didn't want to pay Iman what he was what he was getting. tradable salary. That's the one where it's like okay now you don't have Brandon Knight anymore. It was now the, you have no way to replace the salary. You have to go get re, now you have to go resign him. It was the combination of that or not doing that, the 2019 offseason, and then not expanding the Westbrook trade. Because if you remember, there was a couple of weeks between when the Westbrook trade was leaked and then uh, until it was finalized, and you could have taken back more salary in that trade. You could have made it a three, four-team deal, taken back a bad contract somewhere else just to have it as filler, and they didn't do it. And it's hard to argue that it wasn't financially motivated to some extent. And having tradable salary counts, I mean, right now, that's one of the reasons that the Rockets have not released those four players from Dallas, even though, well, maybe Boban's the exception, but other than maybe Boban, they're not interested in keeping those guys. Well, no, because they can keep them. The off-season rosters, you can have up to 20. And as of August 24th, I believe, two months after the Wood trade, you can aggregate those guys in potential trades. And Raphael Stone wants that as a possibility because those things have value. And the Rockets, by letting uh, Shumpert go and by not expanding the Westbrook trade, they lost out an opportunity to have those types of salaries that can help them in other moves. I would just say in general, you know, I mentioned earlier like a 13-month span from mid-2018 to July 2019 leading up to the rush trade being what sort of uh, led to this rebuild. There was especially a two-month span from May to July of 2019 that was so bizarre. Well, this is what I want to get into now because I, I do want to preface this. This Westbrook trade, and I said this at the time, it did not read like a Daryl Morey move. Like everything we talked about earlier reads like stuff that Daryl does, right? Mm-hmm. Again, he doesn't overpay for role players. He doesn't like bad contracts. We've seen him dump contracts in the past before. Mm-hmm. That's not uncharacteristic of Daryl. This Westbrook trade is uncharacteristic of Daryl. Chris Paul is every is like every bit the kind of player that Daryl Morey likes, right? Mm-hmm. And Westbrook is every bit the kind of player that Daryl Morey doesn't like, right? Mm-hmm. Loves to chug mid-range jumpers, not very efficient in that area, not the best rim finisher, not great at defense. Very strange to go swap those two. And I think a p- part of it was that people thought that Chris Paul was on a decline. I, dis- I firmly disagreed with that. Mm-hmm. I thought he had a down year. But whatever the case, Daryl chose to take this decision on the chin, right? Like he, when, when we facilitated blame, he called Tim McMahon of ESPN and said, listen, I take blame for mm. this as well, right? So we're going to give him blame. But we, let's be very clear here. Tim McMahon has reported multiple times that Tillman Fertitta was a driving force behind this decision, as well as James Harden. Yeah, I was like, as well, let's as well that. as, yeah. right, yeah. They all have, they all have blame to share. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that they don't. But this is where I think his, you know, kind of what's the, what's the word for it? Shuttle involvement, right? Where he kind mm. of shuttles in and shuttles out. This is where it hurts him, right? Because he doesn't understand how that yeah. organization values Westbrook, and he thought of Chris Paul as a bad contract, and he would not let that go. He would just that was just in the back of his mind throughout yeah. the 2019 and offseason. By the way, one thing on the Harden angle that I will throw in, I think the last year has given more credence to the idea that Harden had a role in that because some of the pushback was if Harden really wanted Russ that bad, why would Harden then want out himself just a year later? 
well, look, Harden did the same thing in Brooklyn. He was there for one year with KD and Kyrie, and then he wanted out a year later. James, it's a combination of indecisive and also just desperate because he's been so brilliant for so long, and now he can see Father Time staring him right in the face with some of the declines, and you know he wants to get a ring and is desperate, whatever it takes to get one. And I think he felt the situation with Chris had run its course. But at the same time, yes, I do believe that Tillman played if, a role. If he wasn't one, he was two. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, in the, and in the blame the, blame the interview that he gave when he was doing his book tour, the shut up and listen when he st- taught, stopped by a lot of the what talk a book shows. Title. I know. Um, he talked about you know his b-ball op staff getting a little you know weak in the knees at the end and then pushing it for that final five percent. I could see that because I think it would have been very difficult after the way things left off in 2019, the playoffs, to bring back that same group. And I do think Tillman, and not just him, really a lot of people in the organization, wanted change for the sake of change. Unfortunately, where I think that may have had a role, it's not just did you acquire Russ for CP, but it's also the extraordinary pick package that, um, is still that was included with it. Outstanding. It, you know, right because now. it only, that trade happened less than a week or was agreed to less than a week after Oklahoma City blew it up by trading Paul George to the Clippers. You could have played it out the entire offseason the way the Nets are doing right now with KD and Kyrie and perhaps not given as much draft capital as you get closer to training camp. But they wanted something, in my opinion, that would get them in the headlines. They wanted to move on. And in my opinion, they probably paid a bit of a premium. And this is where Tillman comes in for executing that deal early in the offseason as opposed to trying to wait it out and get it at a lower price point. Now, to Daryl's credit. Hold on. I I do want to say this. You're talking about how Tillman may have pushed them to pay a premium or pushed them to do it earlier. Yeah. I will say I think – there, Tillman also pushed them to do it, period. I don't think that front office was 100% sold on this trade. I don't think the front I, office you'll, was, you'll but, ne- I think, but I think James never was the biggest on one that was pushing for that. Yes, but uh, but that, there was there were people in that front office that were that were against this. Yeah, I, I, yes, I think that. that's fair. Right. And, and like th- this idea that Tillman didn't push them to do it flatly, I disagree with firmly. Like he has blood on his hands. For I, I, I think he was in support. I think he was in support of the deal. Yes, right. I think that's fair to say. Right. I don't think he pushed. But you know, being solo, in support but, of the deal, like as a general manager, is different than being the owner. Because yeah. as the owner, if you're in support of the deal, guess what the team's going to do? <laughs> yeah, they're going to do it. it. It clearly sets a tone for right. sure. The only thing I was going to say is thank God Daryl Morey put protections on those picks because that's what got you Jalen Green. They did have. At least to an extent, a you know get out of jail card that was attached to that, and they did have to use that. Ended up paying off. So thankfully, Daryl had the awareness not to leave them unprotected. That's the one silver lining to it. Yeah. But yeah, I think we're in agreement on the general principle. At least, at least he was in support of it. Did he drive the deal? Uh, we'll never know the exact. I think we percent. do know. Here's here, here's why I say because like we've had multiple accounts of reporting. That he was one of the driving factors and Harden, right? I'm not saying Harden's blameless. Same thing with Daryl. Well, I, I know. Chose... I, when I say we won't know, I mean the exact proportion. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think where, 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 however you want to build the pie chart, it is Daryl, James, and Tillman. Right? Okay. Those That's are the three biggest. That's fair. Those are the three biggest figures in the organization. Yeah. So he gets at least a third of the blame. I don't think that's crazy to say. And he's the owner, so it's it all falls on him. Every yeah. bad or good decision falls on him. I think. And I think this was one where it's like, even in the moment, there were people that thought it was a bad decision. I thought it was a terrible decision in the moment. And I just, I thought it was really like too much. It was just way too much to pay for Westbrook coming off a season that made second team all NBA. It was just very strange to pay that much for 
just basically being growing impatient about Chris Paul. Like if you waited just a few months to see how Chris Paul looked the following season, mm-hmm. you don't do this trade. Yeah. And another thing that I'll point out about that time period in 2019, there were some strange, strange things that were happening in the two months between when that Warriors series ended mm-hmm. and when the rush trade was formally announced at the end of July. It started with really most years, including this year, you have these exit interviews. You know the way the process goes. Uh, the season ends the day after you talk about what went wrong, what we're going to work on over the summer, just basically like a primer. There was nothing in 2019. They went radio silent for a week. It led to some speculation about would Mike D'Antoni be brought back. Then what ended up happening, over a week later, they went radio silent, no interviews, no exits, no anything. Did you, do you remember the vibe in that arena after that? Oh, yeah. Because I remember leaving, and if I dropped a quarter, it would have resonated across the arena. That's how dead quiet yeah, oh, it was. Oh, yeah. So silent. Like, it, was yeah. so, it, was, it wasn't like 2018. Yeah. Like, 2018, like, yes, it was a gut punch. Not like 2019. 2019 yeah. was like, we've given these guys two swings and we missed. Yeah. And then a, a week after that, or actually it's a little bit more than a week. I want to say it's closer to like 10 days. There was a leak from Berman that D'Antoni was coming back, but that some of the assistants weren't. And one of the unique things about that was, and this has been changed since, at the time, Mike did not control his assistants. Yeah. Daryl controlled his assistance, which is a very unconventional structure. And it's changed since I verified it myself, the media day this year, which did happen or media day after the season, I asked Rafael, you know, the obvious question, just confirming that, Hey, is Steven coming back? And do you expect the assistance to as well? And he said, yes, Steven is, but as for the assistance, I'll leave that to Steven because that's his purview. And that is a change because Daryl Morey controlled the assistance. And I do think that bothered Mike D'Antoni. That's why I think D'Antoni's exit, it's not just about Tillman, Daryl had a role there as well. I know we'll get into that. But that's sort of the start of that two-month span where things went so crazy. And and then at that point, D'Antoni was going into his lame duck year. So first weekend of June, Daryl and Tillman get on Tillman's jet to go up to West Virginia to talk about an extension because they initially tried, once they decided to bring him back, to do a one-year extension, which I think was in part due to his age because nobody was quite sure how long he wanted to coach. Mm-hmm. And and Warren it, wasn't there. Huh? Yeah, Warren Legary, War, yeah, Mike Sager. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. And it didn't go well. So they then went up to West Virginia a couple of weeks later, and Daryl and Tillman, and they thought they had a deal. As it turns out, and I've talked to some people about this. Um, Daryl and Tillman thought, based on Mike D'Antoni's responses, that things were headed in the right direction that he was ready to accept. But the bottom line is Mike looked at it just as more of like a general conversation, more broad parameters. But then he would let Warren Legary, his agent, and also uh, World Antony, his wife, sort of look at the particulars. And so it wasn't as done as Daryl and Tillman thought. Regardless, there was a miscommunication because after that meeting in West Virginia, they leaked to the press that they thought that they had a deal. Um I mean, the verbiage was like headed towards an agreement. You know, it didn't say we absolutely had it. But the point is, you don't leak it at all if 
you don't if it's not going to happen for one reason or another and of course it ended up not happening and mike left after the season and we do need to emphasize how strange it is to have a have a contract negotiation with the coach without the agent present like that's not very common like i i think daryl and mike had a very personal relationship yeah. at that time that organization yeah. structure like they were very simpatico right daryl T- uh, tillman mike and james uh those guys all like were all in alignment in terms of yeah. where the Rockets need and to go. So, like, I guess it's unique in that sense, but it was still strange for yeah. them to take the private jet down to West Virginia and, and meet them without the, yep. without the agent. And that did rub Warren Legary, the agent, the wrong way. And I think that did have at least play a mm-hmm. part in him not returning. And then the next really weird thing that happened, just to sort of keep it in the same time frame, I know we'll get to 2020 when people left, but... The Jimmy Butler pursuit in June of 2022 was so bizarre. They leaked so many times about how confident they were, only to be totally ghosted yeah. by Jimmy on the first night of free agency. This was 2018, right? No, no, this is 2019. Because I feel like 20, 20, this, the, the Jimmy Butler pursuit was after the first miss. Um, after- no, no, no. 2018, he was on Minnesota. The yeah, first but- Jimmy Butler pursuit was in the fall of 2018. They tried to offer the four first-round picks, and Tibbs just would not trade him to the Rockets. Was this? Okay, yeah. 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 This is when the season was, wasn't yeah. going their way. Okay, yeah, yeah but right, this is right. all in 2019. That summer, um, you know, they they went radio silent at first. Then you had the ill-fated trip to West Virginia where Gerald and Tillman thought they had a deal. They didn't. Then you had the entire month of June leading up to free agency, all this confidence about landing Jimmy Butler and trying to get um, deals lined up for Eric and Clint, uh, Eric Gordon and Clint Capella to line up the cap space. And apparently it was so not even close, like within a couple hours of free agency opening, Jimmy had agreed to a deal with the Heat. It's like, where did that confidence come from? The whole thing was so bizarre. And then, of course, the rust trade. It all led up to that. And the rush trade was just, in my opinion, a clear sense of desperation in which sort of, hey, we don't have any other cards to play. Let's just play this lottery ticket and see what the hell happens. And I'll give you some insight on this. Um, and we'll get into it more talking about like why these guys left. But shortly after the rush trade is when I sent in my notice to, uh, to Locked on Rockets. Because like – I had wanted to walk away after 2018. Like the daily podcast, I can't begin to tell you how much of a grind it is to yeah. edit the audio, the video. And at that point, it was just audio, but it was transitioning more to video. And I could see, I was like, holy shit, doing this every day when you're not getting like truly full-time pay for just that. It's hard. Podcasting is, is hard. Like, I, I, do model, week, I do it weekly. Doing yeah. it daily is insane. Yeah. And I wanted to walk away about in 2018. Yeah. In part because I thought that I was going to get to go through a championship run. I was like, hey, it is a very intimate experience, especially the daily podcast. It's like, I'll go through this. I'll walk away. After how close they were, I said, you know what? No, I want to stick around. I I want to be the guy hosting this daily show when they win the title. So I'll stick around through 2019. After that season, you know, we know how weird it felt. And I was on the fence. And then after the rush trade, I didn't know that the rebuild would happen as quickly as it did. Mm-hmm. But I knew or strongly suspected that the window for the Harden era of actually winning a title had closed, that it was yeah. very unlikely. And so at that point, to me, that move just reeked of desperation, of us saying, um, by us, I mean the Rockets front office, basically saying, and then of course we can throw Tillman and James into that as well. I'm just talking in a very general sense. We don't have any other cards left to play. We don't think we can really run this back we tried for Jimmy Butler, and who the hell knows what happened there. Let's just hope that somehow 
we can bring back, well, not only 2017 MVP rush, but Russ, but somehow make him more palatable in a team concept, which, and a team construct, which may not have even been possible. That goes into some of the old school MVP debates. But, um, yeah, to me, the Russ trade was just desperation. It was just sort of a Hail Mary after all the other things, like Jimmy Butler had not panned out. And they didn't have a ton in the way of tradable salary, as we talked about. They didn't have a lot of assets because they had used those assets. And we are back. If this is odd, it's because the camera cut off and we we, we both went home and we had no idea that, that it stopped recording. But I did write down where we I did note down uh, where Ben uh, left off talking. I know he, he got cut off in the middle of speaking there. Uh, so the Jimmy Butler point you make about how they pursued him, it resonates with me because it is kind of proof of what I was talking about earlier, right? In that Tillman was not flatly opposed to going into the luxury tax, right? It was he was open to it, and Daryl was just wasn't willing to go into it for a role player. He was only willing to go into it in certain circumstances. Now that doesn't that doesn't mean I dis, I agree with their decision with Iman Shepard. I still think they should have brought him back. I still think they left them avenues to improve the roster that they wouldn't have had had they just kept him. And I just think you know that I think that it is important to note that. For some reason, like n- nobody ever talks about how they were, they were at one point very willing to go into the luxury tax, trading Eric Gordon and PJ Tucker and turning it into Jimmy Butler. That would have been a significant increase in salary. That would have put them in the luxury tax for multiple years. Yeah. And let's be clear I'm sure there are some people that are going to listen to this and say, well, what if they leak these rumors? Guys, that's not how the NBA works. If they were leaking false interest, you would have had agents of the players involved jumping in immediately to push back. The rumors were real. They were very interested in Jimmy Butler. It's just for one reason or another, he chose to go to Miami. He ghosted them. It's not a matter of saying, oh, we tried and then it didn't work out, so we're going to pocket the money. No, agents are pretty savvy. They will push back on you in the media if you try and you know, put their clients' names through that kind of thing. The interest was genuine. It just didn't work out. And it was just the culmination of a very strange couple of months. Um, When we go back to, you know, the game six of the 2019 second round against the Warriors and just how dead silent that arena was when everyone walked out, so much uncertainty, a week of nothingness on the coaching front, then you have the news that D'Antoni is coming back, but that they're going to shake up the assistant coaching staff, which is interesting in and of itself, because typically the head coach has full control over who his assistants are. That actually is how it works now with the Raphael Stone and Steven Silas administration. It was not back then. Daryl Morey was the guy, not Mike D'Antoni, who had the final say on the coaches and specifically the coaching contracts. So it was Daryl that was making the shakeup of Mike D'Antoni's staff, which is interesting in and of itself. You had that in May. You had the Jimmy Butler pursuit in June. So much leaks of all the confidence, and then it just didn't work out for one reason or another. And then you head into July. It's fairly quiet. And then all of a sudden, the rust trade. Just a very bizarre confluence of factors. At the end of the day, I think it was clearly a desperate team. Um, they felt that... We talked about the rest thing. I, I, I went through the video. I think we did go over that part. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah, this yeah. is this is one of the hazards of um, retaping podcasts. Right. Uh, the, yeah. One of the first ever uh, dual location singular podcast uh, for video. So thank you all for bearing with us. Um, but yeah, just a lot of factors that went wrong in that time frame. It ultimately led to um, all the decisions that went down in late 2020. Right. And, you know, you did talk about more uh, about, sorry, excuse me, D'Antoni's exodus. Right. Mm. And that that was strange. Right. The Like the whole going to, you know, meet D'Antoni uh, at his home without his agent present and, you know, deciding to agree to a contract leaking to the media, as you said, uh, and then, you know, not actually coming to terms. I think that rubbed Warren Legary the wrong way. Uh, Mike D'Antoni's agent. And I think at that point, it was really, there was really no return because D'Antoni had significant interest that summer. If you guys remember, there were several mm-hmm. teams interested in Mike D'Antoni. So it wasn't like he was Houston, or at least it seemed like it wasn't like it was going to be Houston or he wasn't going to coach anymore. It looked like at that point in time, D'Antoni had a job secure in the NBA. It just was a matter of where. So it was strange to do it like that. It, that it, it is, I guess, uh, you know, both Tillman and Daryl felt comfortable approaching him that way. Uh, it is what it is, but I, I bring that up to say this. This is where I think you can. There are two camps, right? There's mm-hmm. people who believe that all these exits, these all these exits are are separate, right? They're mm-hmm. all, they're their own things. And then there's what I believe, and that it's I think it's domino theory, right? I think, you know, people underestimate how close those three were. And when I when I say those three, I mean D'Antoni, Maury, and Harden. Like those three were symbiotic very close, constantly communicating. And it never surprised me that uh, when, di- when you know, D'Antoni did decide to step away from the Rockets, I mean, there was that Kelly Eco story where he reported that that emotionally set, you know, Daryl Morey back. Like, that, yeah, that, that was jarring for him, right? He had that press, co- he had that uh, broadcast interview during the, the the Lakers series where he talked about how they were expecting to bring D'Antoni back or they, they wanted to bring D'Antoni back. I think the fact that they weren't able to do that and that they had to embark on this entire new coaching search where D'Antoni, you know, Maury had grown comfortable with, with, with D'Antoni by that point. Like he may have been someone that Leslie Alexander was, you know, very fond of and maybe it was more of a Leslie hire than a Maury hire at that point. But by that point, D'Antoni was Maury's guy. They had grown very comfortable with each other. They believed basketball. Um, they believed basketball should be played very similarly, right? Like they, it made like the way that Maury wanted the Rockets to play on the court. D'Antoni was going to coach that way, and mm-hmm. similarly, Harden was willing to play that way. So I think that you know, I, you know, you, you go from D'Antoni steps down. Maury is taken aback by that. I think that's what makes him ultimately decide. Listen, I think this isn't it for me. So he steps down. And I think Harden, you know, you had your general manager that you trusted. You were there for, you know, seven years together. He's he's gone. Your coach that you finally found a great relationship. Remember, he did not have a great relationship with Kevin McHale. We know that. We had he mm-hmm. had very public disagreements with Kevin McHale. And Dan Tony, like, they were very publicly on the same page. They were tight. In, in fact, like did like Harden, there is a press conference, you can dig this up actually, where Harden talks about how tight he had grown with Mike D'Antoni. And yeah. like, so, so so when when those two stepped down and stepped away, 
I think that that was ultimately the final straw for Harden. Obviously, he had indicated that he was not happy with the direction and he forced the rust trade. Blood on his hands, of course. He shouldn't that's not that's something he shouldn't have done. And he he had he has blame for that, as well as Tillman and as well as Maury. But I think ultimately the fact that they weren't able to retain both D'Antoni and Maury like is what led to Harden leaving. And I think that's the this is why this is what I view as the three more most important functions of ownership, right? Uh, we talked about one of them, which is committing financially when it's time to commit. The other two are hiring excellent employees and retaining excellent employees. And I think it's hard not to believe that losing those four excellent employees, because it's four when you add in Tad Brown a few months later, in literally every capacity of the organization, right? Business, front office, coaching, and on the court, losing your leader on every level of the court, it's hard not to view that as a black mark against Tillman for me. To an extent, but I think there's some extenuating circumstances. I do agree with you that there was a domino effect. However, I think the dominoes were Harden, then Maury, then Tad, and definitely not all connected. As far as Tad Brown, look, I know for a fact that the Rockets organization and Daryl Maury were not on chummy terms after Daryl left in October of 2020. Of course, he initially said that he was going to take you know, a gap year. That was what they leaked. And then he ended up going to Philadelphia a couple of weeks later. On some level, I think the Rockets, at least the key decision makers, had to be aware it was a possibility as soon as they let him out of his contract, the GM that accomplished, other teams were going to show interest. But if you remember that December, the Rockets were quite unhappy when Daryl Morey ended up making those comments about James Harden during all the uncertainty, the drama, and it actually played a role, as I understand, in the NBA you know, giving the Sixers and or Maury, I can't remember exactly who was fine, but they fined 50000 for tampering as a result of some of Daryl's comments on Harden. So I want to make clear, it was definitely not, you know, just a staggered, you go now, I'll go later. No, it's just the opportunities opened up. And especially when you have guys that are as accomplished as Daryl and Tad are and at this stage of their careers, it makes sense for them to go. Well, number one, they're East Coast guys. They have family roots in the area. Both of them have college-age kids, Daryl with his daughter at NYU. Uh, Tad's son-in-law is uh, Jared Stidham, who at the time had just been drafted by the New England Patriots. So they had a lot of ties, and they're also very accomplished basketball-wise. So they're not going to go to a rebuilding team. If they move, they're going to go to a team that's ready-made. So when those opportunities opened up with the Philadelphia 76ers, with Joel Embiid in his prime, it made all the sense in the world, but it definitely wasn't but, coordinated. But Ben, the, they'd been they'd been here for thirteen years, right? Like Maury and Tad had been here for a long time. They well, had yeah. established roots. So like this idea that they were dead set on going to the East Coast, I never bought it because like what did we never got leak leaks about them offering incentives to stay. Because and, and, the, and, and, yeah, and then they they, off, they also offered in uh they also you know, Tillman also got duped into signing that contract as a contingency to buying the team about allowing Tad and Maury to double dip, right? And, and get paid double basically by and, leaving and getting guaranteed money from the organization and getting a different job. So like, I think on some level, that's a failure. He should have at least on like offered a raise, make up for make up for that money that he could have been offered on the open market, offered, you know, Maury, a race to a race to stay and we never got leaks that that ever happened we got we did we got leaks on several other things you know including the incentives that we talked about about how maury had a mm -hmm. significant incentive to leave during his contract we never got a leak that maury got significant incentive to stay 
the domino effect, what I was going to, you know, I was given some context, but to sorry, get back sorry. to your original framing as far as the domino, for me, Mike D'Antoni might have been a contributing factor, but I think the main thing was James Harden deciding that he could not win a title in Houston. And then we've had reporting that he really started second guessing his future in the bubble. And honestly, it goes back even a year before that, because there's been reporting from Tim McMahon of ESPN that Harden was ready to ask for a trade if they didn't make uh, the Russ deal. And again, I'm not saying that to absolve Tillman of responsibility. Clearly he had a role as well, but James at that point, if he was willing to go that all in, clearly he had some real concerns as early as the summer of 2019. So this had been building um, for a while. The one thing I'll say about Mike D'Antoni, I do agree that Gerald Morey likes Mike D'Antoni as a person, as a basketball but it's kind of interesting that the job that I mentioned in 2020, it looked like he was going to get a job when he left the Rockets. The job that it looked like he was going to get was the Philadelphia 76ers. And then, of course, it went to Doc Rivers because nobody expected the Clippers to cut bait with Doc, but they did after they blew that 3-1 to lead against Denver in the bubble. And a lot of people since then have been wondering, especially since Daryl took over, oh, is Doc going to get let go? And then you bring in Mike D'Antoni, especially after they lost in the second round last year. Guess what? It hasn't happened. And so I'm not saying that also getting paid a significant sum of salary. Like he's getting paid one of the heftiest contracts. among. He is, but it's also worth noting that Philly has not shown any real, uh, you know, stringent uh, purse strings as evidenced by hiring Daryl and Tad, among other things. Now you could be right. There can be a point for everybody where the finances are just so extreme. But while I agree that Daryl thinks that Mike is a very good coach and I think he likes him as a human being you did make a good point that Daryl was not actually the one who made the original Mike D'Antoni hire that was Les Alexander and I think that while they were close over the years and I do agree that in 2020 uh, Daryl did want him back I believe the statement he gave to the media was accurate I don't think that they were like this and just joined at the hip and that that was um, the final straw I think the final straw was James Harden coming to the conclusion that he could no longer win a championship in Houston and wanting out. Now but that wasn't can't. the odor. Like, like, like he may have indicated that he was looking elsewhere, right? Like, like James Harden may have had wandering eyes or he may have indicated that, Hey, if you guys need, it wasn't the order of the public leaks. No, but no, it I, wasn't I, the order that it happened. Like I disagree. Harden was the last one to literally ask out like, and like, I know that we had we we did get reporting that he was threatening a leave, but he never actually. I think that's a said, big I'm... difference. He didn't. He may not have actually said it in public. Uh, behind the scenes, I mean, all of this started in. I mean, do you have confirmed reporting that he ever did. That? I don't have confirmed, but I've talked to a lot of people that are pretty uh, solid on the idea that Harden's mind was made up for sure by the early October workouts, which uh, actually was about a week before Daryl gave his resignation. I always thought that timing was interesting, although I have not confirmed that myself. Right, um, and we do have early confirmed... early October workouts with Kevin I'm Durant. I'm sorry, if I, if, I, if I may interject, we do have confirmed stuff that Harden did say in the media about how he, Mike D'Antoni stepping away and, and Daryl Morey stepping away had some impact on his decision to, to ask for a trade. If you he say... said that. Well, yeah, because he was asked the question. And quite frankly, it's an easy answer for him. The hard answer is if he says, well, I felt like Houston couldn't win a championship because you know what the follow up to that is? Well, then why did you push so hard for the rush trade that got them into this mess? It's much easier if he takes if this is one of the reasons why 
as even as someone that is involved in these press conferences, I'm hesitant to fully accept the answers at face value because in many cases, it's a leading question. If you ask James Harden that, of course, it is the easiest way for him to get out. It is a way Tillman Fertitta is not popular in NBA circles, and it's a way the national narrative can be that, well, the Rockets just didn't do what it took to support James Harden, and then he gets off scot-free, as opposed to if he says that the team isn't good enough, well, why isn't the team good enough? Why don't they have assets to trade? Why don't they have any salary cap flexibility? And of course, it all goes back to the Russ trade, and he had some role in that. So I would just and, say that James so, Harden... So did the owner, right? Like, Well, I, I, that's fair. It's a combination like, of things. And what I was going to say with James, yes, you can convince me that the uncertainty with Mike D'Antoni played a role. The fact that when he was in the bubble, it was clear that it might be Mike D'Antoni's last run. And, you know, one thing that Tolman does play a role in, um, the failed just personal management with Mike D'Antoni, that trip that he and Gerald took to West Virginia, that... We talked it was about advised, right? Well, and just the misinterpretation. Clearly, Mike was open to a one-year extension. That's what both parties wanted because, really, nobody wanted to give him a super long-term deal because they weren't sure how much longer he wanted to coach or what the direction of the Rockets would be at that time. Rockets are very much in a year-to-year situation at that point, so there's no way they even get to that stage if he's not amenable to a one-year deal, which it was rumored that everybody wanted, basically to avoid the scenario of a lame duck coach entering the final season of his contract, which is unfortunately what ended up happening. And Daryl deserves, uh, or, or Tillman, excuse me, deserves some blame for not managing um, the relationship. I don't know that if it was Tillman or Daryl who leaked to the media that the deal was close to done, but either way, it does reflect on the organization. It was a poor choice. I'm sure it didn't go over well with D'Antoni, and as you mentioned earlier, it didn't go over well with Warren Legary. And on some level, I think the miscommunication, the root of it is that Mike D'Antoni on a personal level is not a very confrontational guy. And I think that he, um, you know, he sort of told Tillman and Daryl, yeah, that sounds good because he didn't want to leave the Rockets and he was open to it. But he leaves, you know, looking at the particulars of the contract, the finances, the terms, et cetera, to his agent, Warren Legary, and to a lesser extent, uh, his wife, Laurel D'Antoni. And I think once they looked at it, they told him, hey, this isn't really a good idea. You deserve better than this. The deal didn't get done. And to some extent, yeah, you can lay that on the owner's feet because if you had decided from a basketball standpoint that you wanted to keep him around, which clearly they did, why the hell else would they travel to West Virginia to try and get a contract extension if they didn't want him? then maybe offer some just more money and just say, you know what, even if it's more money, just give them more money for one season and let's just be done with it. And let's, you know, build some positive vibes with the coach. And more importantly, as you pointed out, his agent. The fact they didn't do that led to everyone around the NBA going into that year wondering if this was it for Mike D'Antoni. And yes, it was one of many dominoes that I think led to, you know, the James Harden decision. But I just don't think it's the only one. I think clearly by what James did in 2019, as you said, the role he played in the Russ trade, um, it would be a little too simplistic to say that the failed negotiations with Mike D'Antoni is what led all of these other guys to leave. I mean, it may have played a role. But we do have reporting that it did at least impact Darrow on an emotional level. Um. I mean, that's that's there. It's there's no debating that the reporting doesn't exist. Like Kelly Eco did report that that it did 
what it was jarring for Daryl Morey. Well, I'm sure the day of, yeah, that plane flight home, that's what Kelly wrote about. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult uh, when Mike basically made the decision that he's not even going to negotiate. You know, it was announced the Rockets lost Saturday night by Sunday afternoon. It was done. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was very difficult and it played a role. But I just think all of this was going to happen regardless if James Harden wanted out. And it was the confluence of factors. He's one of them, for sure. Um, I would say the rust trade is a much bigger one. And overall, just the fact that the Rockets window being open as long as it was, um, the longest active playoff streak in the league, eight years. And Gerald Morey's 15 years, or 14, almost 15, with the organization. They'd never had a losing season. Part of that, of course, um, Morey wanted to rebuild the way they are now through the draft. Les Alexander didn't want that, didn't greenlight the quasi-tanking scenario that they're in now. So they sort of had those three 41 and 41 type years, number nine seed, where they just churned assets that led them to Harden. And in the last eight years, um, were pretty much full contention mode with Harden and just MVP brilliance every single season and trying to make the best of it. Look, some of it was poor asset management. Some of it was underinvestment. Some of it was the role of Mike D'Antoni. But some of it was also the fact that windows in the NBA, it's really, really hard, even if you do everything right, to keep them open for much longer than the Rockets did without a ring. Now, if you win a ring, then maybe you get into a situation where the players, because their legacies are largely set, the superstar players, that is, they're willing to ride it out with the positive vibes. And also that buys you a ton more trust in ownership and management. But when you have a window open that long and you haven't won a ring and your star is getting into his early 30s and he feels father time creeping in, which we're clearly seeing as a factor with James Harden, even if you do everything right, it's pretty difficult to to still keep him bought in in that arrangement. So that's sort of the pushback that I would give. Is that that Daryl you're talking about? No, I'm talking about James. To keep James bought in and not wandering elsewhere and once it became clear that the relationship with James uh couldn't be fixed to use the words from his infamous uh press conference I I do think that all the other people that had been there for so long all of a sudden it made them reevaluate really everyone in the organization and can't remember if this was before we cut off in the podcast or not, but just up and down the organization. We heard Bill Worrell say it when he stepped down, that he didn't have the energy to go through a rebuild. It, you know, he in 2016 had wanted to phase into retirement, but he kept hanging on to try and be part of a championship team. That's what I was doing with Locked on Rockets until I threw in the towel after the rust trade. I said, you know what? I know this is not going to end in the championship and I don't have the energy to keep doing this year after year. So I, so I gave it up. And um, we even saw after uh, last season they moved on from Matt Bullard and hired Ryan Hollins as, you know, alongside uh, Craig Ackerman, the new TV face. Just basically it was a normal break point and all of that. And I think lifers like Daryl and Tad that are very successful, they're getting, you know, around 50, give or take in age, their kids had gone off to college, nothing really waiting them down in Houston, successful enough that they could easily get another job. I think once James Harden wanted out and especially with the switch flipping as quickly as it did, this wasn't a San Antonio like situation where sure the Spurs had all those consecutive playoff runs 
those years, they had the most active streak for the Rockets. But then even after they lost Kawhi Leonard and we knew that was into their contention window, they still had a couple of years in sort of like just the NBA's middle ground, middle class with DeMar DeRozan and DeJounte Murray, those types of players keeping them afloat. With Houston, it was clear. The switch was flipping. They were actually endorsing um, this type of um, drastic rebuild. And so I think it made it even more likely for Daryl and Tad to step away on that front. The do other you thing mind, that I- Do you mind if I make a counterpoint to that before you move sure, on to- sure. So- the, the counterpoint to that, right, is Daryl's counterpart in Oklahoma City, right? Sam Presti. Yeah. Like, he's willing to go through the rebuild, right? Like, so, and he's mm-hmm. the guy who had the exact same tenure, right? They both got hired as general managers in 2007. And, you know, they were both general managers now. Obviously, Daryl mm-hmm. left his organization, but Sam was willing to go for the rebuild. And we know if Sam Presti wanted to, there are six other general manager jobs lined up for him. Same thing with Daryl, right? Yeah. So, this idea that, you know, laying down that much time, like obviously Daryl had roots here. Obviously he had roots in, 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 on the East coast, but this idea that he, he can't be incentivized to stay. You can't find a way to make him happy. You can't offer him a raise. You can't do anything, you know, like organizationally as an owner to make, keep all of these guys happy. That's a lot of employees leaving like Tad, Daryl, D'Antoni, those are guys you have direct control over. Obviously, players, it's a lot harder to keep control to control their future, right? Because it is up to them at the end of the day. But you, as you said, whatever whether you believe the original sin is D'Antoni's negotiations, well, the bungling D'Antoni's negotiations. Well, Tillman has a role in that, or the Russell Westbrook trade. Well, Tillman had a role in that. Like what, whatever original sin you want it to be, right? Like, yeah. What whatever first domino it is, right? Like Tillman was directly, yes. at least partially responsible in knocking it over. He had a role, yes. I just don't like the simplistic framing of well, he's the owner, so it all falls. Well, on I'm that. not. I'm not using that simplistic. I agree. Framing. I agree. I'm just talking about how it often gets played out on social media, and that was the source of our sort of original beef. That I you know, assumed a little bit too much in terms of your position. Yes, it's fair to say that he has a role. The counterpoint that I would make to your counterpoint about Sam Presti is that that's a bit of an outlier. Uh, NBA GMs, executives, we see this happen all the time. It's very rare to see guys stick around in one location longer than 15 years. You know, I've been watching Winning Time, the documentary on the 1980s Lakers, and look how many times, you you know, some of this is as an executive, some of this is as a coach, but Jerry West, Pat Riley, these guys have moved on, typically stay 10, 15 years. They move on. We've seen what um, Danny Ainge is doing this summer in Utah after his extended stay in Boston. And of course, some of these are their decisions, some of it's management. But the overarching theme is that regardless of the particulars, these situations sort of run their course. And when I've talked to people around the Rockets about it, what I've heard more than anything else, three words from people across the organization, it was time. They felt that they had tried so many different ways with that configuration of the team, the organization, that they just needed to hit the reset button. And, you know, you're correct that that doesn't have to mean that everyone leaves. Sam Presti is a good example of a guy who clearly would have other alternatives and has not bolted. And so good for Oklahoma City. But I just think that's a bit of an outlier. The other thing that I would point out in a pro-Tillman direction is that it's not as if the other parts of the organization have dramatically shifted. I've seen a lot of people wondering, oh, did he force these guys out? Is he trying to build his culture? 
Uh, or is it people from the organization that just can't stand him and want out? And now he's yeah. having, these were no, all promotions. Yeah, yeah. These were all promotions. The people that took Tad and Daryl's jobs, Rafael Stone had been working there for 15 years, starting as general counsel. Gretchen Shear had been working there for 20 years. And now she's, well, she's not CEO. She's president of business operations, but it's effectively the same role, just a very yeah. few minor differences. She's basically Tad's replacement. And those were Rockets lifers that were hired under the less administration. So that's another thing that people don't seem to get because they just see the headlines about Daryl and uh, Tad leaving. And by the way, I want to point out, as long as we're talking about reporting, I asked um, Tad in his press conference at the end of the 2021 season, when he announced that he was leaving, I asked him the very question that you let off this, well, the second part of our video podcast um, saying, which is that people are going to try and connect the dots, seeing all these people leave in these leadership positions in a short uh, period of time to Tillman Fertitta. What do you say? And he pushed back strongly on that when I asked and said, I think that's extraordinarily unfair. This was an incredible opportunity for my family. Now, do I fully five do I fully minutes believe... ago? You just lectured. No, 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 no. I, I know, okay. I know, I know. Yeah. No. I, now, do I fully believe that? No. Just okay. as the other questions sort of led hard, not intentionally. I'm not saying the reporter's doing anything wrong. No, it's just it, it's the right thing for him to say in the moment to that question. The question certainly has to be asked, but it doesn't take a genius to figure out what's the best PR answer. And yeah, the same thing is true here. So I'm not trying to say that what Tad told me is the gospel truth. No, all I'm doing is using it as sort of a counterexample to what you pointed out with Harden in that, you know, are there elements of truth to it? In both cases, yes. But in both cases, also, I'll acknowledge that, you know, it's also just the easier thing to say um, in that particular setting. So the reason I bring it up is just to point out that, look, the question was asked. He did address it. But the larger point, I think, is that it's certainly not some sort of like cultural shift that went on and some people have tried to frame it as with all these guys leaving no they promoted from within and to this point as we talked about earlier things seem to be running a lot smoother the media strategy has been a lot better the last couple of years uh rafael stone has hit a number of i don't want to say home runs but really uh let's say potential home runs with what it looks like he's done with some of these trades and draft picks. And of course, we'll see what happens with the Brooklyn capital moving forward. And it seems like that they've learned from what happened back then. And that's overall, that's the biggest thing that I would say as we sort of wind down the, you know, just the retrospective of what happened in 2020. We I think do a lot of, more point to hit before we do that. Yeah, sorry. But just to wind down the 2020 discussion, I think a lot of people look at the mistakes that were made, regardless of exactly who you pin the majority of it on, and just try and act like it's just some permanent thing. And the other part of it is that, yes, Tillman Fertitta made these mistakes, but um, he's also, just like anybody, just like any of us, capable of learning from those mistakes and adapting. And as I said, leading off, and I think it's honestly the the biggest truth in all of this is that success came too easy for the rockets in the first year of the fertita administration everything they touched turned to gold right up until that chris paul hamstring and so i think organizationally it led 
to perhaps a little bit of complacency, thinking that, hey, we can cut corners here and there, and we're going to be okay as long as we have Chris Paul on the court in the playoffs, it's all going to be fine. That didn't happen in May of 2019, the rematch year. And then from that point on, it was panic mode. And unfortunately, they, they were not able to salvage things. But I do think there's lessons to be learned. Um, you know, just as I mentioned, Les Alexander, when he took over in 1993, he had things go right the first year, and that bought him a lot of equity with the fan base. Tillman Fertitta almost did the same thing, really did the same stuff that Les did, just didn't have as much luck because Tillman didn't, uh, Les did not have one of his stars go out with a hamstring injury in the Western Conference Finals with everything up in the air. And so Tillman did not get that trust equity. And so it's a, it's a hard lesson to learn the criticism, but he can learn from that. And perhaps maybe he becomes a better owner than Les was because whereas Les always had the, the trophies to fall back on, then maybe with Tillman, it's, hey, I had to learn the hard way. I took a ton of criticism through these first few years when this thing really fell apart. And perhaps it's something that I feel to an extent, they're clearly learning from it already, but I know that, you know, the true picture will not be known until they're in contention mode again. And we see what happens with the luxury tax and their investments moving forward. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to hit on before we wrap things up was Patrick Fertitta because, uh, and this is actually a point uh, in pro Tillman, because I, I think th- he gets a lot of criticism, right? Because, it's the nepotism thing, right? It, and it's very easy to point to throw it, right? Like, nep- this is the way I always viewed things. Nepotism is neither go- good or bad. It's it's situational. You have to evaluate every situation. Like, think about a mom and pop pizza shop, right? Is That's nepotism, technically, right? Mm-hmm. It, but we don't ever see fingers pointed that way, right? Obviously, it's different when you get to billionaires and millionaires. But it is one of those things where it's this is a league where re- nepotism is rampant. I mean, you want to talk about the front office? Look at Kirk Lacob with the Warriors. Does anybody say he doesn't deserve his job? No. Or Austin Ainge with the Celtics. We know why he, he got his foot in the door. Does anybody ever question his work ethic or that he isn't deserving of his or, position? I know it's no. another sport, but an example in this same town, Jim Crane's son is taking on increasing responsibilities with the Astros. And I think it's pretty clear that it played a role in the Ryan family, Reed and Nolan, basically leaving town after the 2019 season. It's just Jim uh, Jim Crane has the trust equity because people saw him holding that 2017 World Series title. Whereas, of course, Tillman didn't get to be on that stage with Adam Silver. But yeah, I know that's not the NBA, but I think that's another example of, you know, it does happen it's just, you know, people are not looking for a reason to be as negative. Right. And, and you can even the coaching staff ranks like J.B. Bickerstaff, right? Like we know like he got his foot in the door because of Bernie Bickerstaff. It's not it's not a hard connection to make. Just look at the last name. Right. Yeah. But, but again, nobody questions that he wasn't a grinder, that he didn't work his way to a head coaching position. Same thing with how Steven Silas here in Houston. Mm. Right. Like that. that's. It, it's all across the NBA. It happens. And more often than not, when you talk to these guys, they all have a chip on their shoulder because they know there are people that believe that they are undeserving of their position. Right? So they, they yeah. work harder or, or they feel like they have to work harder. And like, it, it's, it's just, a, I think that criticism is weird and everything I've heard, I've listened, I've never, I don't know Patrick Fertitta. Let me say that up front. I don't know him. I've met him once. Right. And, I, and he wasn't even trying to meet me. He met, he was trying to meet somebody else next to me. Right. But what everything I've heard is that he's a sharp guy, that he knows what he's doing. He's in there working every day. He, he is the liaison between Tillman and the front office. Yeah. Right. 
he, right. he's the representative for ownership there. And, yeah. and, and like th- this idea that he can't be eventually qualified to be in a role in the NBA, uh, in an NBA front office, I, I dismiss that. I, I don't think the people should just be like, just because his last name is Fertitta doesn't mean he can't eventually earn his way in there. His, it gets his foot in the door, obviously, but his foot stays in the door if he's actually qualified. And the yeah. Rockets succeed on a front office level because he's doing something right. Yeah. And, and I'll say, as someone that's developed something of a relationship with him, he definitely takes this very seriously. He tries hard. Quite frankly, he's brought up points to me in terms of analytics and some of the advanced metrics that even I wasn't considering. He's a very sharp guy. He wants to learn. The other part of it, and he actually tweeted this out on his account a year ago. It's still there. When someone mentioned either Patrick or Tillman, I forget the original question, but basically implying that they were the ones making the final decisions. I think it was a quip from Stephen A. Smith, now that I'm thinking about it, just a stupid by the by on first take. And Patrick pushed back and says, it is Rafael's call always. And that's what people don't seem to understand on the outside. Patrick does not have a title with the front office. He is, as you said, basically a liaison. Tillman, I know there was some framing with all the changes. People tried to make Tillman into some Jerry Jones type exec that has his hands on everything, tightly managing. That cannot be further from the truth. Tillman is He's almost off. never there. Yeah. Um, they, they made a joke of the Memorial Herman presser that they had um, after the season that it was one of the first times that he's been at his office since he bought the team in 2017. And he Patrick is, is always there. We always yeah, see him. He's yeah. very, um, Tillman that is very preoccupied with Landry's Golden Nugget, all the other businesses that that he has that have given him, you know, the wealth that it took to buy the Rockets at a record price of $2.2 billion in 2017. So Tillman basically enlists Patrick as his rep as an ownership guy that's in the conversations. And it and it is helpful, quite frankly, aside from just the basketball merits of it. Look, there are decisions that you do need to run by ownership before they get made in the NBA. That's just a fact. And to have a rep of ownership that is in the room, that's certainly a good thing. It leads to people being in alignment because you don't have the awkward phone calls of thinking you have an understanding and then things don't go when you try and loop your owner in and get them on the same page. No people are on the same page. They're looped in. It's much easier to then relay it to Tillman because, of course, Patrick knows best more than anybody how to best communicate with him. And again, it's not just a matter of, well, Patrick is there to check off the boxes. No, he wants to learn. Trust me, he makes an effort. He is trying to learn more. That's what I would say. I wouldn't say that I know Patrick well, but I've developed something of a relationship with him. He he is very um, aware of what he knows, and he's also very aware of what he doesn't. And he's challenging himself to try and learn more. And to me, that's a really encouraging sign because – one of the worst things with a GM and owner, any executive, is to think that I know the way and everybody else just has to fall in line because there's constantly new ways to do this stuff. You have to evolve. He's trying to learn, and it's not as if they're trying to take over the Fertitas that is, even if you don't like the last name. Okay, well, he's made it quite clear that basketball decisions are Raphael Stone's purview. They are deferring. They are staying out of the way. That's what's led to the success so far in the rebuild. And again, this is the early stages. Now you've got to develop these prospects. Uh, You've got to invest even more once you get to the contingent stages. And all of that is still to be determined. But I think there's a lot of positive signs over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think. um, And like, if you want to even go back, like 
who did Harden call when he wanted to request yep. a trade? He didn't Great call recall. R- Rafael Stone. He didn't call Tillman Fertitta. He called Patrick Fertitta, right? Because he yeah. knows that's the guy you call. Yeah, um, and, and Patrick is a likable guy. That's important. Uh, with players, with people in the front office, a lot of it in life does come down to do people like being around you? Can they open up to you? And he is someone, from my experience, that's uh, a pretty good communicator. And I think that it can lend itself to success, even if he doesn't have the title, because quite frankly, I mean, it's not his job. It's Rafael Stone's job. At the same time, having someone that does have a good relationship with players, with um, executives, and quite frankly, with media, because clearly he makes an effort to sort of explain uh, the organization's thinking to people in the media to try and make sure because of course the media are then the outlet to fans because they want fans to be bought in on what's happening with this rebuild yeah he's a sharp communicator he's a nice guy and that and definitely more polished than his father in that regard (laughs) talking yeah yeah well that thankfully is one of the things that the earlier segment uh did catch on video but yeah I, i just think so much of tillman's initial media strategy with the rockets was sort of built on what he did when he took over U of H, that salesman strategy, just that constant find a camera, get in front of it, engage up 10% and get them bought in. I think uh, it probably served him well, especially with where U of H was at the time, 10 plus years ago. Uh, it's a little bit different when the expectations are what they are in the NBA. And so he sort of had to learn after the infamous uh, shut up and listen book tour. Yeah. Um, here's where I ultimately land on uh, Tillman as an owner. As of now, I think he's got a pretty mediocre reputation. I, I think the Rafael Stone promotion has been by far his best move as an owner. Everything else has been kind of a mixed bag. And when the team gets good again, uh, like I'll say it right now, Rockets fans do not want to hear about the repeater tax. Like that rhetoric has to go. Uh, if the Rockets feel the difference between paying the luxury tax and not paying it next time is substantial enough to swing a championship, they have to pay it. Like, no questions asked. And if I were to rank Tillman against the other NBA owners, I'd say he's in the 15 to 20 range. Like, he has a lot to prove. That's kind of where I land with him. I, he, yeah. He's 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 had a mixed bag as an owner. Yeah, and I think that's fair. I would say putting him at this point as a middle-of-the-pack owner is completely reasonable. And I apologize if I was a little harsh in my response to you back in uh, February, because your verbiage, and of course, with Twitter, that's one of the difficult things with all of social media is that we're trying to read behind the limited characters and see what the intent, you know, what is this person getting at? And, you know, when I saw you all of this being together, it reminded me of conversations I've had with people who um, who are fans of the Rockets and they've used this phrase themselves, Nick South, basically making him out to be James Dolan, which I think is just comically over the top. Has he made yeah. mistakes? I don't think I ever yes. used that phrase. No, no, you didn't. But I'm just saying, right. you know, our back and forth reminded me of a lot of others in which people will use the logic, but then they will use that basically as a springboard to then jumping to the most far reaching conclusion that you can possibly get to, which is that he has no clue what he's doing. All of these things are automatically going to happen again. Uh, nobody's capable of learning. And it's just, and it's not even just about what well, he needs to learn. No, also they're ignoring the correct decisions that he's made. Uh, Raphael Stone among them. I also think Gretchen Shearer has done a really good job um, 
in terms of some of the partnerships that she's put together on the business side and some of the outreach that they've done uh, with the Rockets fan community. I know that's not um, directly tied to wins and losses or assets you have available, but I do think in the long run that stuff does play a role in how the franchise is perceived. That's more and more important in the NBA every year. I think Gretchen has done a really strong job, and to this point, that seems like a really uh, encouraging hire. Julian Duncan, who they uh, hired to oversee their marketing efforts, who had NFL experience uh, with the Jaguars before that. That was an underrated hire that took some real money that they made last summer. And so I think you're seeing them improve their perception with some of these outreach things that they're doing. And all of these, in my opinion, are positives from Tillman. With that said, until he spends at a high level and until he proves that he can you know, keep these guys like Rafael and Gretchen that are in these positions for the long haul. Because even if even if he was far from alone in terms of, you know, the role that led to uh, the variables that led to Daryl and Tad leaving, well, look, they are very good at their job and they did leave. And Tillman's the owner. So, yeah, it's fair until he does it to say, OK, is he going to keep these people happy, uh, compensated, fulfilled, whatever it may be, financially or otherwise, to stay in their positions for a very long time. And until he does it, then, yeah, it's fair to have questions. And so to this point, yeah, I'd say a middle-of-the-pack grade is fair until they do more. Uh, it would be silly to say that that he's better than that. And I think even the Fertitas themselves would agree with that at this stage of the equation. They've got to actually show it at some point. All I will say is that I've seen some encouraging signs the last couple of years that they're they're developing, they're growing, they're learning from some of the earlier missteps. And if they, you know, continue on that path, then there's upward mobility for the, for him to have a higher ranking than that a few years from now. And regardless, definitely not uh, James Dolan South or whatever some of the more extremist takes on uh, Rockets Twitter and NBA Twitter have suggested the last couple of years. How long have you and I known each other, Ben? Like five uh, or six years, I think? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when have I ever been a hot take guy, man? Come on, you know me. <laughs> the one you know? thing that I will say is keep in mind when we had that discussion, it was in February right after the trade deadline. Emotions were very high for a lot of people because people within the organization and – well, I'll say within the organization, I should say within the fan base and the media sphere – really wanted them to trade Eric Gordon and Christian Wood. They didn't. It was a very quiet deadline for a team that people really wanted to see active. Now, of course, since then, they have traded Christian Wood. But at the time we had this discussion, they had not. And so there were a lot of really um, emotional, over-the-top reactions flying out there. So I think I was probably on edge a little bit. I assumed too much. And that's why it's good to have these conversations um, in a longer format where you can actually engage face to face as opposed to, you know, the 280 characters or less version that were allotted on social media. And you, and you know what we did today? You know, what we accomplished today. We proved that you can have a civil discussion about things you disagree about and it doesn't have to get heated. You don't have to make caricatures of the other person. <laughs> you, you can, you can just like, just talk about it. Like just, just talk about where you disagree. Talk on the merits, no name calling, no attacking, no uh, assuming someone's intentions about something. Just assuming. Just assume what they said. What they said is what they what they mean. You know. And like mm-hmm. I, I think I think we need to, we need to, we need to do better at that. Um, For sure. But uh, this was really fun. We planned to go 15 minutes added on. We actually went. Yeah, longer. I know. It is no, what it, it is. It happens. It, when it you're happens. trying to evaluate an owner's five-year tenure, or really, it's more than that. Now, I, I had a feeling it was going to go on. 
it is what it is. It, I think I think it was a very um, what's the word I'm looking for? Wholesome discussion. We, yeah. we, 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 we talked, we pretty much covered every area we wanted to hit. And yeah, I think I actually have the closeout for this podcast in person. I think I actually delivered in person. Oh. So there we go. Okay. All right. The video cut out early. Ben has left. As you can see, uh, it's just me now. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for coming on, Ben. I know you're not here anymore. Uh, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Uh, subscribe to RedNationHoops.com. If you are a fan of my content, you'll get an extra episode per month. Apollo Houston is the YouTube channel if you guys really support the video series that we're doing. And yeah, hope you guys have a good rest of your day. <laughs>